everyone, and welcome to the Death by Adaptation podcast, a bi-weekly book club where we choose one classic book and compare and contrast it against its cinematic adaptations. I'm your host, Nicolo Grasso, and I'm joined, as always, by the lovely Yuan Gledo. How are you doing, Yuan? Uh, well, I, Enjoying I don't know if you're leaving the audio... Oh, I was going to say, I don't know if you're leaving the audio in, but... Staying in. I don't know, maybe it's the taste of the glass. I don't know. Oh. It's, it's meant to be very, like, not... Like, it's meant to be quite strong. But I can barely smell it, and it, it just tastes a bit shit. Maybe it's because I'm alternating it with a can of orange, like, Fanda. <laughs> that might be why. Just I'll, by muting the taste that way. I'll have, I'll have a big swig, hang on. Let's see. Let's see what happens. Is it better? Mm. It's, yeah. It's the bigger the swig, the better. And nice. Yeah. Nice. I've got a ration it, though. Like, after this podcast, I'm ordering a takeaway just to get a bottle of Coke so I can have a few vodkas. <laughs> What takeaway are you stuff. taking out? Are you I'm going to get a, a lovely pizza. I've never had anything other than a pizza for takeaway. Like, oh. never. From who? Pizza Hut, Pizza Express, no, Domino's? So I live in the middle of absolutely nowhere, so we've got no good takeaways. The last time I got a takeaway from a place near me, the, the garlic bread I ordered had a bit of metal in it, which was delicious. Really nice. Um, but I found a new place that's next to the pub we always go to, and their, their pizza and burgers are, oh, it's beautiful. It's so good. So I'm going to get myself a nice chicken, peppers, mushrooms. Nice big bottle of Coca-Cola. Can't wait. Nice big tub of garlic sauce as well. I just finished having dinner, but that's making me slightly angry. (laughs) (laughs) uh, The people that are listening can't see, but this is my dinner. This lovely glass of red. It's very classy. It's very classy. I need to buy... Oh, God. I need to buy wine glasses for my flat as well, don't I? Just one. I don't entertain people. (laughs) Just, Just one... It's a normal need... glass. You don't need the wine glasses. Well, I, I, to be fair, at uni, I used to drink um, like all, any alcohol out of. I had a Fallout Four mug that I got <laughs> from like a press release thing, so it had the Vault Boy winking on the front of it. Oh man! Oh no! But no, it's um, I don't know. One glass fits all, doesn't it? <laughs> you can get uh, wine glasses that are the the size of a bottle, so you can pour the whole bottle in and just drink it. But at that point, you may as well just drink it out of the bottle. So it's going straight to the source. <laughs> anyway, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the Fifty Shades trilogy, which was quite the conversation and quite the quite the combo, just movies and books. But today we're going back to what some people would say are proper classics. We're going back, <laughs> we're going back to Catch-22. I'm due for rotation myself in a couple of months if, if I don't cause any trouble or break any rules. And one of the rules says I can't ground anyone just because he asks me to. Can you ground somebody who's crazy? Of course, I have to. There's a rule that says I have to ground anyone who's crazy. I'm crazy. Who says so? Ask anybody. Ask Daily Dog with what? Hey, you Oh, tell him. Tell him what? Am I crazy? He's crazy, Doc. He won't fly with me. I take good care of him, but he won't. He's crazy, all right. Catch 22. Anyone who wants to get out of combat isn't really. 
freedom. Okay, let me see if I got this straight. In order to be grounded, I've got to be crazy. And I must be crazy to keep flying. But if I ask to be grounded, that means I'm not crazy anymore and I have to keep flying. You've got it. That's catch 22. Woo! Originally released in 1961, but even though it took like eight years to write, which is a long, long time to write a novel, uh, Catch-22 is a satirical war fiction story written by Joseph Heller and is considered to be one of the most important and most famous and acclaimed war books of the 20th century. And I have to say, I can totally see why. This bonkers story of a group of soldiers, American GIs, in a small... In a small on a small island near the coast of Italy during World War II. Part of, it, of what happens is taken from Heller's own experience during wartime, but he injects so much into it, so much humor, so much heart, such a strong voice in the way he writes just the entire book. And again, he started writing it in 1953. And it's so complex, and there's so many different layers, and the structure, it's very interesting, it's very compelling. Where I was reading it, and I thought, yes, this this deserves to be praised as a proper masterpiece. So I'm, I'm curious you on how you feel about this, this classic book. More or less the same as you. I really, really love it. Um, I think a lot of it is because it is, you know, it's it's your traditional classic. When I, when I first got into mm. reading a couple of years ago, it was more or less, you know, Catch-22 was very much up there with stuff like Pride and Prejudice, with stuff like 1984. It, it's always been synonymous with that with that label of classic, and it wasn't until I read it that I kind of, you know, you, you just get the conception of, yeah, it's a classic, you just accept that, you can't really fight against it. And it's once you read it, you realise why. And it's, it's so good. I didn't know it took eight years to write, but when you think about how how complex it is mm. and how smart catch 22 is and and how many characters overlap and how it's flowing so well and it's just oh it's magnificent it's that is eight years of hard work that that's that's really good um and it's i, I think as well the whole classic tag it, it helps that catch 22 actually spawned a, a logistical argument of actually yes. what a catch 22 is which is still you know i mean it doesn't help that i've had a glass of wine but i still can't get my head around it <laughs> it's 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 tragic that's the beauty of yeah. the actual catch 22 because it's it's funny in the moment but when you think about it it's tragic and for those who don't know and i'm going to do a absolutely horrible job trying to explain what catch 22 is it's basically you're screwed whatever you do whatever you want you're just screwed you're in an impossible life and death situation where it's impossible to escape from because the protagonist of the book, Yossarian, he has to fly, he has to fly bombardiers. Well, that's the name of the Some planes, of right? Yeah. Like uh, bomber airplanes <laughs> over like a Nazi occupied fascist, fascist, fascist cities in Italy, and and he doesn't want to do that. And every time he's almost reached this total number of fly missions that he has to do. The colonel just raises them up again. It's like, oh, you have to do 50 missions. Oh, you're almost close to it. Ah, now you have to do 70. Now you have to do 80. And he just keeps moving them up and up and up. And so Yosarian wants to get grounded. He wants to go home. He doesn't want to fly airplanes anymore. And so he asks the local doctor, the military doctor, actually, 
to be grounded. And the doctor is like, I cannot do that. It's like, but I'm crazy. I don't want to fly. I'm crazy. It's like, I know you're crazy, but I cannot ground you because if you want to be grounded because you know you're crazy, then you're not crazy. But only crazy people would actually go fly up in those airplanes to get killed. So whatever you do, I'm still not going to ground you. That's basically Catch-22 in a nutshell. And just the, the book encapsulate goes back to this, encapsulates it in so many wonderful ways. And it is honestly insane and beautiful that this ended up becoming a common term. Misused. I was reading up a couple of interviews with Heller himself, who hates how people have misused it over the years. Where he kind of, where sometimes he, he, I, there was an interview where I read where he's talking about, you know, go out with friends and other people and writers and whatnot. And then they go like, oh, I've had like this Catch-22 situation. And they just smile and nod. And as soon as they stop, I'm like, that's, that's nothing to do with a Catch-22. <laughs> it's not what it is. It's just a common annoyance that you can easily fix. <laughs> that's not what a Catch-22 is. Um, but it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's very smart. And I think the the logic behind Catch-22 is the, the real genius of it. I mean, regardless of how... Because, let's be fair, the prose and the quality of the writing and the characters are magnificent. Oh, yes. It all circulates on the logistical issue at the heart of it is that to be insane... Is the only way to get out of flying, but to refuse to fly and to say you're insane is a sign of sanity, and then you've got to fly. And it's, I, I would be hard pressed to offer a different example of that because it's such a, it feels like such a specific example, but it's it's something mm. that is, as as you said there, quite commonly misconceived and quite frequently used. And it's, I think it's the sort of the actual, the the catch twenty two of catch twenty two is the fact that. It's so synonymous with a catch twenty two that people are trying to use it as a catch twenty two and realizing mm. that it's not a catch twenty two, and it's, you know, I I I read a a review of this book um, on Goodreads, which is always a mistake because the, oh. the 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 user base of Goodreads is about as bad as Letterbox. So, so well, we have a better vocabulary, I'd say. Yeah, the, <laughs> that's the positive. Any word over say. five letters on Letterbox is a bannable offense, but. It's someone said that one of the issues they have with Catch Twenty Two was the the circular notion of the characters. It's always round in circles and circles and circles. Mm. It's the repetition of it, but I think that's the beauty of it. I think that's the the best part of Catch Twenty Two is that it it goes round in these circles and it's 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 the endless loop because that is what Catch Twenty Two is. It's the endless loop of trying to break out, thinking you've got a way out, and actually realizing no, that's that's the exact issue that is sort of prevalent, and it's. I think Heller's writing really sort of prides itself on on how much it realizes that. Mm-hmm. I think you'd be hard pressed to write another situation that sort of defines a catch twenty two so well. Is that you know Yossarian doesn't want to fly to say you don't want to fly is a sign that you're able to fly essentially. And it's you know we can bang on over and over about what is and is not a catch twenty two, <laughs> but the the sort of you know the the actual book Catch Twenty Two, not the logical statement, but the actual writing is superb. It's so grim and sadistic, but it's got such a wry little humor to it. It's so mm. darkly funny. It's you know the, the, these men are all banged up in a hospital because they're injured or trying to break out of being up in the air, and and we'll talk about the movie because it's it 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 ramps up the comedy without the the black humor of it. Mm-hmm. But it's still there, and in the book, it's so horrifying. It's so like it. It really goes for the heart on it because th- these are really strong emotive characters, not because that they're, they're sort of 
larger than life or unique, but because they, they just feel very humanized. They're very, not flat, but they're, they're recognizable. Nobody mm -hmm. wants to go fly in a war because that might lose your life. That's Im immediately, you can just connect with your Sarian and go, okay, yeah, fair enough. I wouldn't want to do that either. Yeah, it's a very simple anti-war message that manages to be much, much more complicated than than the adaptation, which we'll get into later in a bit, little bit. But it's uh, what especially loved reading it, not only the structure, because it's borderline episodic at times. Uh, it just going like in the first like half of the books, like 300, 400 pages, just keeps introducing new characters and you focus on them. You just understand everyone's personality and they're very funny, but they never become full on caricatures, full on cartoons. And they're all kind of relatable and understandable in a weird way. And just so much of the humor hits and it hits hard. And this is actually one of the very, very, very few books that I've actually listened to. I had an audiobook. There's a, there's a very fantastic version on, on YouTube. And I was listening to it and the narrator did a fantastic job because I read, I think, like 200 pages of the book before switching to the audiobook version. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. It gives a specific voice to all the characters. It brings them to life. And it brings the, the words to life. And and it's 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 exciting, it's fun, and it's dark, but it never it never wallows into misery. It never takes itself excessively seriously, even though it is very much aware of the seriousness of war. And it works really well when it's trying to be very funny, but there are also more somber moments um, that still manage to sneak in a laugh or two, but are nonetheless quite powerful. And one of my standout sequences in the book is when they are in a like a tavern or something in Italy and talking to some Italian people. And there's like this elderly man, and one of the soldiers is discussing, like talking to him about the war. And they're talking, about, and he's like, "Oh, get ready because the U.S. are going to fall." And but Italy, Italy would never fall because we kind of like accept everything that happens to us. <laughs> That's knowing the history of my country that spoke to me very much. It's very true, and. And it shows also like the, the I don't know how to say it. Just let's say jingoism because it's a good word. But like this need of like you know the U.S. is going to conquer everything, and they we join World War Two, and we're going to save the day. And that was the mentality that all those soldiers went into the battlefield. And you see that in the younger soldiers of this camp of this army base, and and you know they're going to lose their lives. And you know it's not going to lead to anything good. And what's very effective is that he started writing it in the 50s. Like, 1953, I want to say the Korean War had just started. And it was not... I mean, it was a big deal. It wasn't as big of a deal as World War II or as the Vietnam War, which would come a decade after. And just a couple of years after the release of... The, the book was actually published. But I... You get to the end of the book where it, it really manages to transcend the message of war is bad, war is dumb, <laughs> people are stupid for trying to go to war. Yeah, how do you feel about this? Yeah, it's, it, it's 
you know, any book that sort of tries to encapsulate war, any film that does it, any any song that does it, is always going to be sort of straddled by the, you know, the anti-war message because that's the sort of one it leans towards. And it's, you know, if if I mean, we 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 talked about Paul Verhoeven briefly with Hollow Man a, a few weeks back. I don't know if that I don't know when that's out actually, but the what I always take away from Starship Troopers, for instance, which is a great book by Robert Heinlein, is um. War is horrible, and that is... You'll never find a pro-war book. I mean, I've read a couple this year. I read All Quiet on the Western Front and The Day in the Life of Ivan Desiovich. It's War is quite grim. Mm-hmm. There's no escaping that. It's it's how you showcase that grim feeling. And a lot of it is, comes down to how violent it is, how disgusting it is, and how gruesome it can be. And, and Joseph Heller has that. He has that underlining everything. What he has on top of that is the sort of mental fatigue. He has the mm-hmm. the, the the horrors of reacting to, you know, losing a friend, losing someone that you fought with just a day ago. It's and it does feel personal. It's really horrifying. And it's it's also got the benefit of releasing right just just right at the right time. Yes. You know, like like you said, I think it was the Korean War started in nineteen fifty and like fifty three. People were still like shell shocked by that, even in the sixties, because in the nineteen sixties you had, you know, I don't mean to use my air level in history here, but um, I think I, I believe it was the early 1960s where, you know, you're coming up to JFK's presidency, you're coming mm-hmm. up to the Cuban Missile Crisis, you're coming up to the Bay of Pigs. Before that, you you do have the sort of embers of the Vietnam War when France was essentially pushed out of their colonies. There, it's it's all of this is going on, and while it doesn't directly involve America just yet, when when uh, Catch Twenty Two was released in '61. People still remember the Vietnam War, uh, sorry, the Korean War, Korean. and they still remember World War Two as well. So it's it's right at that crux of this is a book reflecting on two previous wars, but as it's gone on, because this wasn't a real big seller until it released on paperback, is that by the time it got to that point, my God, it was a reflection on the Vietnam War that was about to begin, and it's it's such a perfect little time for it to release because it's. It essentially covers war in in as a large dark comedy, mm-hmm. and it's you know the the best thing about that sort of thing is that while Catch Twenty Two does have a setting, it does have its place in in a historical context. It does feel quite timeless in the sense of this can be applied to a lot of other warfare books and a lot of warfare films. It's like it it has a such a dark underscore to it, but it still has that like not not beauty, but it has the beauty of being very focused on what it wants to say and 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 doing that is so difficult when you you think about the amount of books out there that do talk of war and how it can be misinterpreted and how it can just sort of channel off different emotions different emotions of negativity catch 22 is so focused on people want to get out of this so clearly so particularly and everybody is just you know you think of a character like major major (laughs) the bless his heart because he's just spat on and shot down and just stomped on the whole way through. And and you look at that, and it's not that we feel sorry for him, it's that we feel anger towards those that have put him in that position, because really, he's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and it's the same for Yossarian. He's just a man with his senses about him. He doesn't want to fight a war that he's not particularly keen on. And he's punished for it. And it's... You know, it. it I, I feel like that's pretty particular for a lot of war books, where it's you know people are fighting a war that isn't their fight. Um, but I think Catch Twenty Two is one of the few that's actively thinking of the horrors and thinking of what they're trying to avoid, and it always keeps that at the forefront. It's if Yasserian doesn't ignore this or try and get out of it, then this will happen. 
and he uses other characters as examples of what could happen, you know, like Snowden, like <laughs> Major Major. It's just, he's either going to blow up in some horrible atmosphere or he's going to be stomped down by people that are trying to convince him that he's doing the wrong thing, yet are rewarding him for doing that by the end of the book. Yeah. And it's it's shown really well in the adaptation with um, Alan Arkin. And I think that's one of the strongest scenes is the um, the, the initial flight when Ysarian's on board and he's just so shell-shocked by it all and he's screaming and he's like crying out and he's wounded. Pure and the panic. people around him, and it's that's the humour of it, the people around him are just going, ah, you're right, pal, don't worry about it. And then it just cuts and it's a white room and it's the white backdrop on the plane and it's that's it's so good it's so so good um it's one of the few adaptations where i've watched it and thought this actually adds to what the book is saying it adds something mm. different but it also adds something new it's so just what a film and what a book honestly it's yeah. I, I'd, I'd argue it's one of the few war novels to actually truthfully capture the the emotions of a soldier mm, mm, absolutely absolutely and let's go. Let's go into the film. Let's go into it. Um, Catch Twenty Two, the movie, was released in nineteen seventy. To be precise, around like the end of May, beginning of June, nineteen seventy. Directed by none other than Mike Nichols, whose previous two movies were "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf" and "The Graduate," that are some of the finest movies of the sixties. And Catch Twenty Two, the production of this was hell. <laughs> This was a shoot that was supposed to be relatively short and relatively quick. It took quite a few months to complete. There were a lot of problems. Um, and if you're interested, there's like loads of trivia you can find online. One of the funniest parts to me is that Paul Simon is in the film and he was supposed to go back to New York to record Bridge Over Troubled Water and the whole album with Garfunkel. And he was unable to leave the movie, and Garfunkel was so upset that he wrote The Only Living Point in New York. <laughs> I was just like, oh, bless him. He has a line about, like, that's referencing Paul Simon. Like, oh, you, you can leave the movie and come back here, or something like that. Like, that one's going to miss you. I love, it's got nothing to do with Catch-22, but I love the the hate between Simon and Garfunkel. It's <laughs> phenomenal. It was um, it was one of them. I think it was Garfunkel said, "Oh, I'd love for us to do another reunion tour." And the day after, Simon turned around and said, "Oh, I've retired." Just, just, just. Oh, it's it's fantastic the way they. Hit what a coincidence! What a Two, coincidence! I mean, phenomenal musicians. I mean, Paul Simon sort of had a stint in the seventies where he was showing up in movies for mm. no reason really. Um, surprisingly, him and Garfunkel. Are Quite, quite good actors. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Garfunkel in this is bloody Captain Nately, just great. It's, I mean, I, I suppose it, it helps, you know, a, a lot of musicians go into films and they're actually all right. I think Garfunkel, particularly though, he's got a lot of heavy hitting films under his belt. You know, mm -hmm. he did Carnal Knowledge and he did Bad Timing. And it's, that that's a pretty good track record. Um, but I think if you, if you look at the rest of the cast, that's just, you cannot compete with that quality. And I suppose that's the issue of Catch-22's film. <laughs> there is that much quality there that you're expecting quality elsewhere. When Orson Welles shows up in your film, Oof. you have to adapt to that. Yeah, let, let's just read like some of the names of the cast. You have Alan Arkin, Martin Balsam, Richard Benjamin, Art Garfunkel, and just side note, I said Paul Simon for some reason. It's Garfunkel. I mean, I just switched the names. Anyway. The best way to remember it is Paul Simon did You Can Call Me Al with Chevy Chase. 
and Art Garfunkel did not. He did Cats twenty two. He did. He did. Uh, yeah, because it was Paul Simon. Paul Simon was in Annie Hall. He was. Yes. Yeah. Oh man. Um, you have Jack Guilford. Uh, other films. You have Martin Sheen, very young. Anthony Perkins, John Voight, also very young, post-Midnight Cowboy, and Orson Welles, Bob Balaban. It's a banger cast from 1970. This was a big project. Like, they they championed this script. They were moving it around. Like, everyone wanted to make it. Uh, even Orson Welles himself wanted to direct this, which honestly might have been brilliant. Very, very different from this one, but brilliant, because Orson Welles in the 60s and 70s, it was on fire. Um, but it's it's a massive movie, and and you're watching it, and the scope is almost overwhelming at times. This is really well made. Mike Nichols is a great director. There's no two ways about it. There are some complicated ass shots in this. Oh, yeah. you have like airplanes taking off with characters talking, and then they move to another location where they keep talking, and the planes are moving around. And just, whoa, that's days of work. Like, if you fuck up the shot, you have to reset everything. It's like, you get one or two sh- chances to remake it, and then that's it. Um, and it's massive. It's a massive production. It's a massive undertaking. And you said you really liked the movie. You loved it, yeah. actually, and it added to the, fil- to, the, to the novel. I actually have to say I wasn't the biggest fan of this. No. Oh, I was, what about it? I, I was very much into it at first. Yeah. But then I just gradually lost interest and that's and that's the thing watching like reading the novel it's very consistent with the tone how it's balancing everything it's moving from character back and forth and i'm watching this film and it's trying a bit wait a bit too hard to be funny like it's trying to it's taking something that's very funny very dark and they're almost making it cartoonish in some parts um and I was thinking about, like, what are some of my favorite scenes from the movie? I was like, oh, they're all scenes from the book <laughs> that they take straight out. I was like, yeah, there's, there's like the moment where he has to pretend to be a dead soldier simply because his parents can actually say goodbye to someone. Yeah. Very I was like, oh, no, that's almost beat for beat the scene from the book just put into the movie. And the technical expertise and everything around it is marvelous. Cinematography is sharp. Um, you mentioned when they're up in the air, in the airplanes themselves, or it's all like the white background of the clouds and the clean sky. It's great, but then it's. I think that's the problem of taking a book that's over six hundred pages long and making a two hundred, oh, a two-hour feature, <laughs> a two hundred-hour <laughs> feature. Oh that's a long, god! That's, it's not even the mini series, Jesus. And <laughs> um, trying to make it into a two-hour feature. Yeah, it's who's the screenwriter. I forgot. Um, it's um... Buck Henry, who is also in the film, yeah. funnily enough. Um, he's done some great films. I mean, he's written The Graduate. Uh, so it's a great script. But it was probably just too much. And yeah. I don't know if, if it's alright for you. I'd like to read a small passage from one of my Bibles, Ooh. which is oh, Easy Riders, Raging yeah. Bulls, which I think you've read, right? No, yes. no, you recommended it to me, and I went out to buy a copy, and it was out of stock. It's so I'm, actually, good. I'm gonna check now though. Easy Rider There's this passage in chapter three, which is early on in the book. Oh, it's on sale. Take it. Take it. <laughs> I'm just gonna and just bear with me, everyone, but just I think this needs to be read because it encapsulates what I feel about the movie. 
In the final throes of post-production on this eagerly awaited new picture, Catch-22, Mike Nichols and his producer, John Kelly, decided to check out the competition, a picture Robert Altman had just finished that sounded a bit like their own. The two men sank into the plush seat of the screening room. That mash represented a serious threat to Catch-22 was the furthest thing from their minds. Nichols, after all, coming off Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate, was America's hottest director. Right away, however, Nichols got a tight feeling in his chest as Altman's darkly comic vision played out in front of him, recognizing that he had been blindsided. We were waylaid by M.A.S.H., which was much fresher and more alive, improvisational and funnier than Catch-22, he says. It just cut us off the knees. So it came as no surprise to Nichols that M.A.S.H. became a huge hit. Nor to Altman either, who was acutely aware that he was chasing Nichols' tail. He had a banner up in his office that said, Caught 22. So, you know, I, I watched this, it was like, let me just rewatch MASH. I haven't seen MASH in like three years, and I wasn't the biggest fan of it. I liked it when I watched it like 2019, I believe, early 2019. And so I rewatched it, I was like, Jesus, it's right. MASH is so much better than the movie Catch-22. Um, they are very different, and actually, MASH is a book. Like, it's a it's, a, it's an adaptation. I didn't know that. Oh. I read up into it, and basically, the book MASH is a semi-autobiographical, fictional retelling of the author's days during the Korean War as part of, like, surgery, like a surgeon group during the war, during the conflict. And so, the book is not very funny, and the book is not very liberal, and it's not very anti-war. And so Altman just took it as inspiration and just made his own thing. And I was watching MASH, I was like, MASH is actually funny, MASH is actually consistent, but MASH is also less cinematic. Yes. And it's just, Catch-22, you're looking, watching it, it's like, this is a damn movie. You also have proper movie stars who were known at the time, while MASH had mainly unknowns in the cast, for that era, but it's like Elliot Gould, Donald, Donald Sutherland, like they hadn't made any big, big movie up until then. I think Donald Sutherland was in the Dirty Dozen, if I'm not mistaken. I probably was. I think so. Um, but anyway, um, there was just something, it's, it's an interesting comparison between the two, because even like book and film of both versions, it's, it's fascinating, but yeah. I, I, have you seen MASH? I think so. Yeah, I, I watched MASH, uh, I think like Late last year, mm. I watched Mash, and it was really good. I I think I prefer Catch Twenty Two over Mash, mm. the movies. Um, I'm not sure why. I think it just pops more visually because it's Mike Nichols. Um, do you know the story about Robert Altman? What he wrote when he decided to take Mash? Go for it. Um, apparently, uh, so this is a quick story from Robert Reed Altman. My mum's got, mm. uh, had a desk and it had a piece of glass on it. Under the glass was a little piece of paper with my dad's writing on it. I said, what's this? And she said, that's from when your dad decided that he would make the movie MASH. The note said, oh, fuck it, I'll do it. <laughs> Which just summarises quite a lot of how Robert Altman works. It was, ah, yeah, I guess I'll do that. Fine. What a legend. Um, no, I really do like MASH because you've got Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould in the early 70s, which is magnificent. I think a lot of Catch-22, especially because I'd, I'd watched MASH, Mash like fairly recently before it, mm. it's, it, it is very much a, oh yeah, this is no wonder, like, I mean, Catch-22 performed, it, it made a profit nowhere close to what it should have done, 
because if MASH hadn't come out, it would have done a lot better. It would have received far more positivity. But yes. MASH blew down the water. And kind of rightly so. I understand why people prefer it. I think the soft spot I've got is for how much I like the text and how sort mm-hmm. of how much leeway I was willing to give an adaptation of the text because it's it's you are right, it does drift a bit towards the end and it, it changes things here or there. But I, I can never get away from the sort of scope of it when you've got um John Voigt in the car going along the airfield and you see the plane in the background and the camera's slowly panning and then the plane explodes. And it's the lack of reaction to that that's so good. It's it's the fact that he just wants to talk about supply trades with other, other bases. And it's like, oh, well, we can get some Superman and an explosion goes off. And he's like, that's and then scam. we can get buns from over here. It's fantastic. And it's, I really like that because th- there are a couple moments throughout MASH that are sort of, not MASH, sorry, throughout Catch-22 that are just mm-hmm. quite beyond the pale of what is expected and what is real. It's, you know, when Orson Welles shows up and the men are all in the meeting and a woman shows up and they all throw their chairs at her. It's like, take my seat. It's like, it's surreal almost. It's 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 got a, a nice, not edge to it because it's particularly friendly. Nothing underwater happens in that scene. They're just like trying their best not to look at her because they're isolated on a military base with loads of men. And it's it's the impact is more they're, they're sexually frustrated, but mm. they're also frustrated by everything else on that base because they're just so you know i i'd be frustrated on that base because i'm essentially being sent to my death every day which is a bit of a nightmare but you know they they seem to handle it well um i can't remember the guy that plays him but he's essentially the guy in the cockpit with yasarian who's going you're doing a great job buddy and yasarian is essentially yelling please let me out i i'm going to die i've been hit it's like ah chin up lad you'll be fine and it's it's the sort of, you know, Yusarian is very much... It's the book as well. Yusarian is made out to be an insane character when he's the only sane one there. Mm. I mean, even the people that don't want to fly are nutters. They're, they're mad. Like, you know, the, the ones that are also laid up in the hospital have their own little strange foibles, you know? They're all a bit off their rocker. And I, I suppose that's more because either, you know, they've also realised that they'll die there or because they're just unhinged and that this is their way of coping. And I think it's, you know, the book does a lot of, a, a far better job of looking into that than the film, which is more or less just playing it up for comedy, which is fine, but it loses that edge to it. It loses the undertone of this is really quite drastic for the mental sort of sanctions of these people. They're, they're absolutely crackers. Yeah, they're, they're going insane. Poor guys, poor guys, all of them. Um, it's it's a it's a strong cast. I think like Alan Arkin, I like a lot. And I was watching his performance, and that's that's kind of when I started to shift the way I was approaching the movie, where I tried to take it more as its own thing, because even then that performance it's it's Yosarian, but it's 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 a bit much. <laughs> He's always on edge, in a way that's I don't know. In the book, he seemed a bit more. I don't want to say calculated, but you know, a bit more focused. I mean, like, I'm going to do my best to, to leave this base, and just, I'm not crazy, I want to leave. I mean, well, Alan Arkin is just losing his goddamn mind. <laughs> just like, ah! Come on! Ah! <laughs> just going, just, oh man, chill out, chill out, just relax, take a breather, you know, calm down a little bit. Um, he's great, though. It, that's the thing, I really enjoyed him. I don't... I, I will say this, I think... All the actors do a good job portraying the characters, even though I don't feel 
only two actors to me actually elevate the the characters, the roles. We mentioned Orson Welles because Orson Welles just his presence as General Dreadle. <laughs> <laughs> he, he just he, he just comes on screen and it's one of those it's basically a cameo glorified cameo in this film but yeah. it's so good because it's Orson Welles they know it's what Orson Welles yeah for. exactly I mean if you think about sort of you know he, he kind of eased into cameos quite a lot you know he did the Muppets movie he did like you know he, he did cameos sort of didn't he well, I mean uh, he was in A Man for All Seasons quite briefly he was in Transformers same, yeah. and Casino Royale and stuff I mean, he was in Morby Dick for a for a. I mean, he was. I mean, well, he, he played Father Mapple in Morby Dick, didn't he? Um, he did. was in that for a little bit. He was taking essentially these little roles to fund his movies. So, Catch Twenty Two was probably responsible for F for Fake, I suppose. <laughs> poor guy, poor guy. He had oh. a horrible, horrible time back in the I think day. He was shafted by Hollywood. Yeah, That's a was. real Catch Twenty Two. <laughs> he he was stuck in it. Um, yeah. Just the documentary on making the other side of the wind. I think it's it's one of my favorite film documentaries, where you see him almost begging people in Hollywood to give him money. Ah, oh, heartbreaking. Anyway, it's awful. Um, I was I, and I like recently I've, I've been doing. I'm almost done with it. I've been doing like a full retrospective on Pier Paolo Pasolini, the Italian director, and there's a yeah. short film that he made, where there's Orson Welles playing a director. And when he came on screen, I was like, what? what? <laughs> Why are you here? I don't know, but I'm happy. I was just, I was just, my heart sore. I was like, yes. Wells in a Pasolini film. How did this happen? I don't know. It's wonderful. But anyway, um, he really believed in those projects, I guess. Um, but the other actor, probably my favorite performance in the entire film. And I wish there was more of him. Anthony Perkins. Oh, Anthony Perkins as the chaplain. Chaplain Tapman. Yeah. So good. He's so good. He's the only one where through his mannerisms and the way he acted, not only was he like the character in the book, but he felt like there was more to him. To the point where he just, he, he comes on screen relatively early on, when like talking to Yossarian, where he's, he's wounded. And then he doesn't come back pretty much at all up until the end. He just pops up and like, yes, finally he's back. My boy is back. Um... Yes, I probably sound more negative than I than I mean to be about this no, film. I really no, liked it's, it. It's, it was a very pleasant watch. Yeah, it's. But I it's, think the the big issue, and and this is for a lot of novelizations that we we look at, um, the the effect of a novelization is essentially gutting a book to its core elements and its mm-hmm. its best bits. Essentially, it's like a b roll footage of the the bits that the book was trying to show. Yeah. And I, I think Catch-22 is fairly successful. What I do kind of... I don't know, I, I, it's always a controversial one where it's... These characters are experiencing other characters' experiences. So you've, you, you've got a core list of characters. Some are left out, some stories are dropped, but they're still experiencing the effects of those stories, even though they're mm-hmm. not in. It, it implies a lot of reading up before an audience goes in. And I love and hate that. I think it's it's lovely that people who've read the book are going to appreciate it, and it doesn't mm-hmm. lose people that haven't read it. Because, you know, people don't read anymore. We're, we're, we're essentially pissing into the wind with this. But <laughs> It's for a niche audience. <laughs> it's a niche audience of people who read. And but also no, watch it's... movies. <laughs> it's like, oh man, ah, can do it's, both. it's one or the other, surely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I reveal I've not actually read the book or seen the film. I don't do either. 
It's like, you're going to go to Wikipedia and just catch 22 in an Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, okay. what, what is a catch 22? How do you spell catch? But no, it's, um, it's one of the things I do kind of love and hate about that film is the leeway it takes with a lot of the characters. You know, I think because of how strange the book is, and I don't think we, we talked about it yet, but the structure of that book is very delicate. Yes. You can't you can't adapt that. It's impossible. I'm sorry, but there's no way of doing it. And I suppose that the next best thing is to sort of say, all right, well, we've got these moments here that can connect together if we ditch mm-hmm. this and we sort that and we scrap that. I understand that point of view because I imagine it's very difficult to adapt a book, let alone one this sort of, not confusing, but very complex. It's all layered and it's tangled together like a big nest of wires. To, to even go about looking at it is a bit difficult and a bit daunting. And I, I think that's why I can appreciate Mike Nichols's efforts here. It's essentially the best you'll get because I know George Clooney did a mini series of it and that wasn't too well received. Uh, yeah, um, I remember that coming out, and I was tempted to watch it, but then I was like, I absolutely, I just don't like George Clooney as a director, so I don't want to do it. Oh, did he direct it? Fantastic. I, I want to say he did? I might be wrong. Um, <laughs> I thought that's yeah, George, George, George Clooney directed a couple of the episodes. He directed the fourth episode and the last one. One thing I forgot is that Christopher Abbott is playing Yossarian, and I don't know about you, Christopher Abbott has become one of my favorite working actors today. On like on a on a small level still. Yeah. Because he's kind of a seal of quality. There are so many times where I've I've watched him I was like, this was fucking good, and Christopher Abbott is in it. Therefore, Christopher Abbott can do no wrong. And so I've seen that he's in Catching Two, I was like, mm, maybe I should give it a shot. Maybe I should give yeah. it a shot. I don't know. I mean he was in um Possessor, he was in um what you call it? Uh, Vox Lux. Vox Lux, the world to come. Black he's, Bear. Whoa, yeah. man. Jeez. He's got a good track record behind him for yes. someone that has. And this was 2020. <laughs> 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 I mean, I mean, you know. He's a good guy. Good guy. I, I suppose it's, you know, regardless of who else you cast, it's, you know, it's not Alan Arkin as John Yasarian because, no. I mean, what a guy. I didn't realize he's 87. That. So old. Not old as in, oh my god, he's so old. That's disgusting. But as in, the guy has been in so much. And I, it was when I was watching this, I was like, all right, what else has he been? He, he did The In Laws. He did Glengarry Glen Ross. He did Argo. He did Little Miss Sunshine. It's like, what? It's Santa Claus 3. This the Santa Claus. Claus 3 going in style. <laughs> Zach Braff's finest hour. I think it's, this is like the second earliest performance that I've seen It's one him? of the earliest ones for, for me as Wait well. Wait Until yeah. Dark. Wait Until Dark is the earliest that I've seen. Uh, if you it's haven't... the earliest one for me. Yeah. Honestly, both to you, Yuan, and our audience, just go watch Wait Until Dark with Audrey the, um... Hepburn. Yeah, the Audrey Hepburn one. Yeah. So good. It's like Don't Breathe, but actually really great. Oh, good. Don't Breathe. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's quality. It's quality. It's quality cinema. Um, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's like it, I, I feel like I've mentioned it on either this podcast or Uncut Gems before that a, a lot of adaptations of books kind of depend on their cast. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's not not because they were big at the time, but because they took a risk on those characters. Alan Arkin was not the great name he is now at the time, oh. but when new audiences discover it, they're more inclined to see it because, oh my god, Alan Arkin's in it, Martin Sheen's in it, Orson Welles is in it. It's the power of the name. It's the the star power. And it's 
it definitely helps with Catch Twenty Two and it, mm. the, the 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 Mike Nichols one. I don't know if it'll have that same effect with the George Clooney one because even George Clooney is a huge name. He's he's a he's a brand essentially. You know, he he slaps his name on a coffee that you go and see at the cinema before the uh, the the film starts, and that's it. He sold three billion what else Tassimo pods, but <laughs> it's it it. <laughs> I'd like to reiterate, I've still got those 80 milk pods that Jeez. need to go. No, they're never going to go away. They can be I, part of the furniture, honestly. They expire on the 10th of October, so I can use them as like, I don't know. I might drink one as a test. I, I don't <laughs> think you're meant to drink them on their own. But, sorry, but George Clooney <laughs> is like, he's... Whatever he puts his name on, you'd think people are going to see that. But you look at the track record for what he's directed, especially Catch-22, which I didn't realise it existed until this podcast recording. He doesn't have the draw he does as an actor. And I, I kind of... I'm on the fence about his direction. I don't think he's a very good director. I thought Good Night oh. and Good Luck was okay. I thought The Eyes of March was okay. I thought Suburbicon was dreadful. And The Tender yes. Bar, God rest his soul. Um, but but I don't Tender Bar is not a real movie. No. I know it came out and people are watching, but it's not real. Like, no one cares. I, yeah, it's it's the exact That's sort the of mundane degeneracy that you expect from George Clooney. Because mm. it's every time he tries to make a film, it's this one's the Oscar, George. You can do it, and then it turns out he's so overwhelmed by the prospect of winning an Academy Award again that he just Jeez. drops out. I can't mention um, George Clooney without saying that I don't particularly like him as an actor either. I think Oh Brother Where Art Thou is probably his best work, and he's mm. aided mm. incredibly. Yeah. By John Goodman and Tim Blake Nelson in that, um, but I, I really I can't get away with the guy. Um, I think he's okay in Ocean's Eleven. Uh, well, I, I like him in in in, in um... Batman and Robin. No, God, no. No, the <laughs> oh wait, okay, no. Oh, I, I'm oh from dusk till dawn. Oh yes, okay, from dusk till dawn. Because enough, yeah. again, more pretty-faced actors should play villainous kind of roles, even yes. though he's more of an anti-hero in that one. But whatever. And also, speaking of the Coens, it's it's not Eternal Sun. Wait, okay, I think Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind. It's not. Uh, why? Oh my God, Brad Pitt Hill. as well. No, no. no Hills. Oh, 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 Burn After Reading. Burn After Reading. Burn yeah. After Reading. Yes. I need to rewatch yes. that because I watched it when I was very young, and I don't think I understood it. I kind of watched it because of the Brad Pitt meme. Yes, yes. Okay, I saw some small tangent. I saw Burn After Reading when I was when it came out. It was like 2007, 2008. I was like 10 years old, 11. I didn't like it. Me and my family just didn't like it because it was a very offbeat comedy, especially for the time. Like my taste was a bit weird. And I rewatched it doing a small mini retro during the pandemic with my flatmates. Holy shit, it's so funny. Yeah. Like it's properly hilarious. I was like, oh, I should have rewatched this way sooner. It's actually really good. <laughs> it's actually really, really good. You've convinced um, me to rewatch it. It's in that big pile by me that needs to get moved. So it's I'm gonna watch it. it at some point. Yes, yes. I mean, again, it's 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 another one where the cast is so good for that. I already mm. I, like. I can remember seeing J.K. Simmons, Francis McDormand, Brad Pitt, George Clooney. They're huge names, and yeah. I think the ratio for quality and quantity with George Clooney. Is strange, you know. I might try and see if I can find Catch Twenty Two. I think it's on Channel Four's uh, iPlayer thing. Yes, it is um, a Channel Four production, which is it's which is just bizarre, you know. Yeah. Big hotshot American actor going to Channel Four that are best known for like Peep Show and Father Ted for, to do an adaptation of a Joseph Heller novel that was probably watched by about eight people. 
Yes, I don't know a single person that's seen it. And I can honestly, like you mentioned him being, like, looking for awards and stuff. I can see him, like, this is this is the one. This is my magnum opus. It's <laughs> yeah. a, it's a, I'm, a, I'm an acclaimed director making a, a, a TV show, miniseries, limited, whatever. It's like, it's, it's guaranteed to win something. Like, I don't know, Emmys? Nothing? It's like, no one cares. By, by the looks of it, um, the ratings on Letterboxd, 3.8 out of 5. But... I don't really rate letterbox users, but it's got Kyle Chandler in it as Colonel Cathcart, so that could be pretty good. I love Kyle Chandler as well. Kyle Shit. Chandler, what a guy. He's the perfect John Yossarian. You need Kyle Chandler as John Yossarian. Christopher Abbott looks weird. I was looking at some of the screenshots. He looks so weird. <laughs> he does, yeah. I don't know what they did to his face. It looks like bleached. I don't know. Um, anyway, yeah, just I'm, I'm honestly thankful and really, really happy that... I mean, I had to read Catch-22 for this because it was honestly a revelation. Yeah. Um, and even watching the film, it's it's very good. I'm not yeah. as big a fan of it as you are, but it's... You know, it's no, I, I mean... I, I'm I, happy I've seen that as well. I think I kind of have a soft spot for sort of very well-observed war films. Like, regardless mm. of the setting or the con- the conquest of the characters, it it's going to sound weird, but it reminded me of the start of Patton. Whereas... Oh. It's very dusty and it's very like broken down and everything's just a bit strewn all over the place. So it's not because mm. Patton does that well, but it's because I always find that breakdown synonymous with the characters and the war that they're in. I just I don't think it helps that the opening of Catch Twenty Two is that he's stabbed by a woman out of the blue and that's how he ends up like on this journey. It's so a I weird think... structure, yeah, the flashbacks and, as yeah, well. It's understandable because the structure of the book is difficult. Mm-hmm. I just I mean, I, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier when we talked about the structure. He, he doesn't do the best job of it, Mike Nichols. I think he he does well to make sure that all the characters are there and they're, they're hitting the right beats, but the actual sort of, the blur of those characters doesn't quite make sense. I think he does well, because it's for the sake of the comedy. Fine, mm-hmm. fair enough, I understand that. I just think it's rather difficult when he tries to change the tone. Um, I think it only yes. works in one or two instances, like the aforementioned, the, the white and the, the plane wreckage in the white background mm-hmm. the guy's injured on the ground who's tending to him. I, I think that's the best scene in a film that I like. That that is one of the best scenes in a film I've seen in a long time and I think it's mainly because of the gradients and the colouring of that scene. It's just the pure white because, you know this is meant to be his imagination but it's also because he's just terror struck. He's, he's blacked out essentially and he's, he's imagining all this because that's that dying guy's a reflection of what will happen to him. And it's, it's really touching and it's really strong it's just a shame nothing else after that comes even close to what to what Nichols managed in that one scene. Because the rest of it is John Voight and Martin Sheen popping up every now and then. There's so much John Voight. They, they <laughs> turned him into a proper fascist. They like they changed the character <laughs> up quite a bit from the book. Yeah. I think um, it's it's probably like I mean John Voight is an actor so different to who he plays in this film. Like it, it, it's such a not an optimistic performance from him, but so different to what he's usually portrayed as. Yeah, very upbeat, very positive, very kind of, you know, like, optimistic hick dumbness. Like, oh yeah, and then we can just go here, sir. So he's like a kiss-ass. It's, but... it's like Midnight Cowboy if he went to war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I'll say this about the adaptation, just to close things off. Um... I, I I respect what Nichols did because it's it. I mean, this is kind of a catch twenty two if you want. Oh, Heller no. would kill me for saying it, 
<laughs> but it was damned if it like if he changed the prose, like oh yeah. it's straight away from the novel and it's so tight and specific blah blah okay. But if but then he went in a more reverential approach of kind of like literally taking dialogue out of the book, changing the dialogue up so that it or changing the narration up so that it's more like the dialogue in parts. And I mean, bless him, they tried, they tried. I think it was waving it a little bit better, maybe being a bit more focused as well, because they try to make it more about Yossarian, which is the good, the right way to go about it. Because if you just start focusing about like, oh, the guy thinks, like everyone thinks he's Henry Fonda, like you cannot show that in the movie, you'd never be able to. But all the other things, it's, you know, you know, they, they, they did what they could. Yeah. And, it's, and it's really well made, just impressive on a purely technical level, just impressive. If, if... If anything, it's it's convinced me to go and read other the Joseph Heller books because yeah. the guy had such a fascinating way of writing. He he wouldn't write the book until he had the first line and the last line in his head of what he wanted to say, mm-hmm. and then he would write. He would write down the first line. He would write down the last line, and then work in between like he was filling a sandwich essentially. But I mean, he wrote Catch Twenty Two, and then after that, he was like, "Oh wow, this is you know the fame, the money." He just went back to teaching. He just he cracked on. It, it reminds me of Hugh Grant in the rewrite. He, he writes an Oscar-winning <laughs> screenplay and just goes back to, like, some random university. Um, I, I really want to read Portrait of an Artist as an Old Man, mainly because I read James Joyce's Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man and was bored to tears. But also, I mean, it's a very good you. book, but you, you, it's again, it's a classic. <laughs> you can't knock it, otherwise you'll be shot. Um, but also because it's... It's a fiction, but it's very reflective and very obviously a a semi-autobiographical piece of it's about an old writer trying to reclaim his glory days by writing the next big book. And and, uh, Heller died before he did that. It was published posthumously. Hmm. Um, I mean, you look at his sort of, the other, the the novels he did afterwards, you know, he did something happening good as gold, but that was like 10, 15 years after Catch-22, and in the meantime he just lectured he wrote screenplays he he was uncredited as writing that awful casino royale with woody allen and peter sellers is it peter sellers no it's david niven isn't it i've never peter seen it probably <laughs> it's any, any comedy in the 1960s had to either have peter sellers david niven woody allen or um what's his name from being there um he's in peter sellers peter Se- yeah you know what i mean i've only had half a glass of wine <laughs> <laughs> Peter Sellers, David Niven, or um, Woody Allen had to show up, and Orson Welles would make a cameo. <laughs> mm. He says while taking a sip of his nice wine. It's not oh. nice. <laughs> Jesus. It's like, because I, I mean, I opened it last year to be fair. Oh, oh, oh. oh wow. It is really acidic. Like, really. But I'm, I'm tightening the bootstraps, I'm tightening the belt buckles, I'm not wasting any money. And, th- and this £8 bottle of wine is not getting wasted. I've got half a bottle left to crack through. Oh, but it's it's a long line of recording, so... It, t- it be... smells like paint thinner. It, you like you know nail varnish? Yes. It smells like that. It oh, tastes like oh, exactly well, like nail varnish. You know, some people get high on that. The bigger the gulp, the, the easier it'll go down, because there's so much of it that at least I can taste a bit of fruit. I don't know. I, I, I could down that, right? No. You're as desperate as you Sarian right now. <laughs> I'm in a real catch twenty two. This is a real catch twenty two. <laughs> it's not. I, I, Let's tweet honest, at Heller. It's like, it's like oh well. 
it's Catch Twenty Two. I've read the book and I've watched the film. No idea what Catch Twenty Two is still, and I think that's for the best. It, I, it is. I, I think my brain would fall out my ears. It would just dribble out like a wet cake if I if I knew what it was. Um, but no, I think it's that generation of writers, the sort of Kurt Vonnegut's, the the Joseph Hellers. Um, I never thought I'd enjoy. Not because I didn't want to, but I really wanted to. And I was so disappointed when I didn't enjoy uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. And I was miserable when I didn't like Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. And I was really scared to read Catch-22 because I'd heard such good things about it. And it's so good. It's just such a, an unbelievable creation. It's, it's you know, I I've, the more writing I do and the more reading I do and the more watching of films I do, the harder I find it to be inspired by stuff. I, I feel like inspiration comes from conversation now rather than yes. you know, consumption. Catch-22 was genuinely a bit inspiring for me. Not not because anything really touched me or anything in particular with it. It was just, th- this man has layered such a complex story and made it look so easy. Mm-hmm. I know it took eight years to write, but he, he does not show it. it you could if you told me, oh, he wrote this in like eight months with a storyboard, I'd probably believe it. It's it was effortless, yeah. Effortless, yeah. It's so snappy. It's so quick. It's so smart. And considering it took eight years to write, the callbacks, the references, the foreshadowing, it's so promising and it shows such real risk as a writer. It's its like, it's so good. And it's a shame that that's gone in the film, but there is no way you can adapt all of that into the film. And I think that's, you know, he does the best he can with it. He did. He really, really did. Not blaming poor Mike Nichols, especially since he didn't make as much money as he wanted. Poor guy. Um, even though it was the eighth highest grossing film of the year, so, you know, it, it was still ah, a successful this, this film. Is, this is pre-Star Wars and Marvel. It was very easy to breach the top ten when nine films a year released. Oh, yeah. oh you know. Mash was way higher. Mash was much, much higher. It came out like three months earlier. Um, Mash made like, what was it? I don't want to say, it, it might have been triple or more than the profit that uh, Catch-22 made. Let's have a look. Um, Catch-22 made 24.9 million and Mash made 81.6. <laughs> Mash had a smaller budget as well. Wow. Blimey. Oh, just wow. goes to show, just just adapt, just adapt Mash. That's what Alan Alda did, and look at him now, He's soaring. Bless him, bless him. Uh, anyway, Catch Twenty Two, one hundred percent recommendation from both of us. Uh, the yeah. novel, it's a must own. Like you have to have this in your own library. The film, you, it's worth watching at least once. I'd say. I think, um, yeah, it's it's not something you need to revisit or something you'll get out more of on a future watch. I don't think I'd ever watch it again. Because my time is limited and my life is short, and I don't have the time to spend rewatching Mike Nichols' films. I might rewatch it if I want to reread the novel, but I'm too lazy to actually. Do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which then happens sometimes. <laughs> like, oh, but it's. Uh, I can oh, read another a, book. Yeah. It's like the film is two I, hours. You can you can waste two to hours. To be fair, I've in in the past like three years, I've only reread one book, and I've read it three times now. And is it Fear and Loathing? Yeah, it's hey. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, I I don't know. I, I like to keep all the things. Like I've I, I kept my copy of Crime and Punishment under the subtext of I'm oh. going to reread it. I'm not rereading that. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely that not. I I was going to keep the Divine Comedy. It's like <laughs> I, I if I ever think about rereading that, I'll drop it on my head because it'll knock me unconscious. I'll put some sense into me. 
but that's how you're going to live the divine comedy i think i think with catch 22 it's because it's so complex you can always get something more out of that you can always get something else yeah. amen amen to that anyway before before we leave as always you and where can our audience find you on on the web oh well um <laughs> it's your it's favorite part say that, actually um <laughs> It was brought to my attention today that one of the articles I wrote was about a man that would um, ring the doorbell of a couple <laughs> at Thursday, 2am, every every Thursday. And I made the mistake <laughs> of making the social headline, police are on the lookout for a man that rings the doorbell at Thursday at 2am. Um, and every reply, and one of the quote tweets got like 15,000 likes, was, I'm pretty sure I know when he's going to show up. And it's like, yeah, Thursday at 2am, right, I get it now. I'm learning. It's early days for me as a journalist, but it's kind of good because it means it'll bump me up the social lists for the um the end of week roundup. So it'll look nice. like I've done amazing stats. Um, but that was for Daily Star. You can get me on there. Um, you can see me on the front page. <laughs> um, you can get me on Cult Following. You can get me on Clapper, Geek Show, Newcastle World. Um, there's a few more, but who cares? You know, just Google my names. Usually, if I, I I'll, I'll vanity search myself now. If I could Google you <laughs> see what Google. happens. Twitter, cult following, LinkedIn. If you really want to, mm. Daily Star, Newcastle World, and yeah, that'll do. Um, you can get me on Letterboxd and Twitter at Ewan Gledor, E W A N G L E A D O W, and I think that's everything. Yeah. Nice. Nice. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at NikkiYR97, and there you can find me Linktree, Linktree forward slash Movies for links to everything that I've done, my short films, the Death by Adaptation podcast, of course, all the various links. You can follow us on Death Adaptation on Twitter, Death by Adaptation on Instagram, and on TikTok as well, because we're on TikTok, putting them reels up there as well. And people seem to like them, like the two people that watch some of them or the 400 people that watch others. I don't know how that algorithm works, but anyway. Um, and also be sure to check out the sister podcast at this point of Death by Adaptation, which is the Uncut Gems podcast. We've name dropped it a couple of times. I've become the co-host there. And it's it's fun. Every week it's just so fun to be there. Um, and last month we talked about the Invisible Man and Hollow Man, so be sure to check that out. And we will see you in two weeks' time, where we'll be talking about a more contemporary classic, Inherent Vice. So stay tuned <laughs> I for... You... <laughs> I had a mini heart attack. I thought you were going to say Fifty Shades of Grey. It's like, no, we've done that, we've done that. No, we're not going back. Once uh... is more than enough. <laughs> Just... no. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. We hope to see you soon, and we hope you have a fabulous day. Bye-bye.